Hello and welcome. The following is a conversation with Gabriel Skanser, a professor of speech and communication technology at the Department of Speech, Music and Hearing at KTH in Stockholm. Through his research, Gabriel has extensively studied different aspects of implementing language in artificial intelligence. He's also a co-founder and the chief scientist of Ferhat Robotics, one of the leading startups in development of social robots in Europe, with the goal of creating robots that are capable of having face-to-face conversations with humans through both verbal and non-verbal communication. Gabriel's work at KTH and Ferhat is deeply inspiring as it reveals some of the most fundamental positive effects that AI and robotics can have for society. From teaching at schools to combating loneliness or effectivizing patient data gathering in the health sector. It is an indicator of the great possibilities for humanity in both near and far future. I was deeply honored and grateful that he agreed to participate in this conversation. I am Avid Fayaz and this is the AI pod. I hope that you enjoy the program. Why is it important uh, to have social robots? Yeah, that's that's a good question because it might not be so obvious why a robot should be social. So we've we've had robots for a long time working with uh, physical tasks or delivering things like in a factory. Um, and traditionally, these robots have not supposed to be near anyone or interacting with humans. But the social robot, on the other hand, is a robot that actually interacts with humans. So if you think about Star Wars, for example, and C-3PO and R2-D2, <laughs> C-3PO is very much a social robot in the sense that yeah, C-3PO can speak millions of languages and also know about uh, social protocols and so on. Um, uh, and actually, if you, if you watch Star Wars, you see that C-3PO very seldom use the ha- hands <coughs> or arms for anything. <laughs> So that they seem to be there for communicative purposes, right? Um, so actually a social robot could be a robot that both do physical tasks and interact with you, where you could, for example, instruct the robot and tell it what to do. But a social robot could also be a robot that doesn't do almost anything of a, of a physical task, but only is there to interact with you. Uh, maybe if you would, for example, go into a hotel at the reception, there could be a social robot there greeting you uh, and helping you to check in. So, um, so that's sort of what a, what a social robot is. And then, of course, uh, it's it's debatable where the line between robots then and other devices go. For example, is my smart speaker like a Google Home or Amazon Alexa device? Is that a robot? Well, some people call them that, uh, and you could debate that. I don't think it's very interesting to draw the exact line, perhaps. But it's obvious that the embodiment of the robot is very important. So ev- even if you just interact with it by by talking to it, it, there is a difference of talking to something which is embodied, uh, like you are sitting in front of me now and uh, uh, you are here with me, co-located, and that's very different from if I would have talked to you uh, over the phone. So there's a completely different set of, of uh, signals that we can use in our communication, uh, of course. Yeah. Yes, and... Uh, the thing about it is, 
the line, because humans have a tendency to anthropomorphize quite a lot, uh, where should we draw a line between creating robots that we, at least from our perspective, could to a certain degree perceive them as sentient and just an object that we interact with? Uh, when in, in your work in Farhad, do you uh, try to perhaps create robots that from at least the human perspective can be viewed as uh, to a certain degree uh, sentient, although I know I we have yeah. to be clear they're not <laughs> sentient. <laughs> no, but uh, from a we quickly uh, try to uh, reflect our own uh, perceptions to objects. So is that to a certain degree maybe a goal? Uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, clearly, Farhat is designed to look like a human. You can project other uh, or make it look like. Uh, an animal or a more of a sort of traditional mechanical robot if you want to because it's a projected face so you can actually project what you want on it uh, but but it is typically the way we use it it's it's quite human-like it's not as human-like perhaps as those robots you see from japan with a sort of uh, artificial skin and so on uh, which are, are sort of more human-like perhaps it's a little bit more cartoonish in a sense and of course it doesn't have a body so that makes it less human-like in a sense uh, it's it's only the head um, but it's a, it's a it's that's a very important question like to what extent should we make uh, robots human-like and there are a lot of arguments in both directions for why you would want to do that and also why you would not want to do that uh, so uh, I, I think uh, we could, of course, if you want, go into those arguments. But I think the main argument from my side in why we would want to make them at least somewhat human-like is that we know how to interact with other humans, of course. Uh, we are programmed from evolution and learned from, uh, from birth how to interact with humans. And, of course, if we meet a device that looks like a human, we will try to interact with it in the using all the same ways that we are interacting with humans interacting with the device and if the device actually <laughs> responds to that in the right way uh, of course that uh, makes the whole interaction much more intuitive potentially uh, compared to a sort of non-human like device yes and i think maybe if someone were to try to argue against you uh, they would say that that is a slightly false perception i mean uh, the story of the google developer that uh, started believing that the bird system at google had some sort of consciousness is quite famous uh, because uh, it was so human-like, the interactions and the use of language with that uh, language model that he started believing that this uh, system had a, so some sort of a consciousness. So if someone were to try to push back on the uh, position of trying to make robots that are at the end of the day, at the current state at least, uh, complete objects, there are slight, uh, perhaps, dangers f from a human perspective to that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's a great point. Uh, but the, the there is a big difference of sort of behaving as if something was human, or, or s human as a human, and thinking that they're like a human. So I can behave uh, in that way towards a robot and talk to the robot as if it was a human while I still know that it, this is not a human. Uh, I, I think you can maintain that distinction. 
but I agree that there is a danger that not all uh, uh, users or humans will do that and that they will be led to believe that it's an actual human and that there is a danger there I, I totally agree so I think that's something to monitor and think about when designing robots uh, and I, I there is a danger if you too much try to I mean if, if you take the Google example with this with the lambda chatbot uh, that chatbot uh, did if you ask it, are you sentient? I mean, that's what happened, right? I asked the, uh, the chatbot if it was sentient, and it said, yes, I am. And so on. So it sort of really uh, sort of <laughs> led the person to believe that. It could also have said, of course, no, I'm not sentient. So if you chat with uh, another chatbot like ChatGPT, that has been a lot on the media, uh, ask it, it will say, no, of course, I'm not sentient. Uh, even if you ask it, how are you doing? It will say, I have no feelings. I'm just a... Just a chatbot or a language model, mm -hmm. so I don't have any feelings. So that's also a route you can take. Still, the way you're interacting with ChatGPT is human-like in the sense that you're using natural language. So you don't have to think about how should I communicate, what are the commands that I should give. Just use natural language in, in the way you, you you would think you should use it. Yes. So now we're uh, going to the next point and touching on the importance of language uh, mm -hmm. to the whole of this. So uh, what is the importance of natural language processing to creating the social robot? Uh, yeah, so, so that, that's also interesting. I think traditionally in the field of social robotics um, or human-robot interaction, n a sort of verbal language hasn't been so prominent perhaps, uh, partly because it has traditionally been very hard <laughs> to process uh, uh, sort of verbal with verbal language I mean uh, when we're using words to communicate um, so in, in, in a written text you have almost exclusively what we call verbal communication in spoken interaction there is a lot more so if we have in the voice of course you have prosody so that's the tone of your voice so maybe uh, the, the melody of your voice the intensity uh, I can prolong things and, and all of this will add meaning to what I say and help to also coordinate our interaction uh, things like turn taking uh, and all these things so how, do, how do we sort of manage this and all of that is not none of that is in a written chat uh, so that's very different in a sense and of course if we are sitting face to face you also have all the uh, visual cues like the gaze and, and the facial expressions and so on um, but uh, the, of course, the, the NLU that you're talking about, that, that's about the verbal aspect. So that's the words we are speaking. And these have been traditionally sort of s two s separate tracks. <laughs> People doing uh, processing of, of uh, verbal information. That's what you call computational linguistics or natural language processing versus people who have more looked at the nonverbal signals. Um, and, uh, of course, there is now a lot of work to to put these together but that's that's actually quite uh, challenging because it's it's has traditionally been quite quite different techniques for doing that uh, but yeah the answer to your question is yes uh, natural language processing is of course extremely important in a human robot I mean you want you don't just want to raise your eyebrows and and uh, and so on <laughs> to the robot you actually want to talk to it and make it do things and answer questions and so on so in some sense that's that's sort of very central uh, and yes, you mentioned NLU there, which stands for Natural Language yeah. Understanding. Uh, 
the debate on whether NLU exactly, to what degree NLU exists, is perhaps quite heated these days, especially with consideration to ChatGPT. Uh, some say that our current uh, transformer models uh, that are being used uh, do not necessarily have an understanding of language so much as they have been uh, trained on these large corpuses and have developed a degree of uh, contextual understanding but not a true understanding of uh, what language exactly is. Uh, and just for the listeners or the viewers, I have to say that humans, for example, learn uh, that I'm holding a pen right now. Uh, a pen is a pen. Uh, through learning, through thinking, uh, whereas a robot or a uh, AI that you want to train, you have to train it through uh, showing it thousands of pictures of uh, a pen and hundreds of thousands of or millions of pictures of what is not a pen and teach it on that, so it learns by example. Uh, so the question is, can you create a social robots, an advanced social robot, even without having that sort of a natural language understanding through only sentiment analysis? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things to unpack there, because I think to some extent, of course, humans also learn by example. So we all... Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is uh, quite <laughs> true. But I mean, if, if yeah. I were to express to a relatively uh, normal human being what a pen is, mm. I think that that human being, if shown another pen, will yeah. to a certain degree understand that that is probably also a pen. Whereas yeah. a robot needs to have very many examples to be able to Exactly. So I think, yeah, th the main difference there is perhaps not so much the fact that we have to learn things through experience, but that humans are much better at generalizing. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of things there that uh, that are important but but s uh, some some people have pointed out that of course one one we as humans uh, at least are very good at learning rules or inferring rules so if we see a pattern we can infer a rule based on that so for example when we learn math uh, we start counting and so on but soon we understand the principle behind counting and then we can apply that no matter uh, where we are in the number sequence and we can do addition and and so on. Whereas if you, uh, as many people have tested these language models, they are only trained on predicting uh, the next word in a text. Um, and they can do some math, but clearly they can't generalize rules to the same extent. It's very hard to know, though, because we don't really know what the training data was. We don't know exactly which examples it has seen. It has seen billions of texts on the Internet, I don't know exactly what things it has seen. So maybe if I give it a, a test, I think is quite tricky. Maybe the exact same test it has seen, uh, I have no idea. So it's very hard to know. But it, it seems very clear that it can't generalize math very well. It can do simple math, but not very complex math. It, and that's because it, it hasn't learned these generic rules. And humans are very good at that. Uh, so I think that's, that's a very big difference from how these models work. Uh, from how humans work. And uh, you recently, or not so recently, but uh, you published a paper named Galatia that was published uh, in a paper. Uh, and for those who don't know, Galatia is uh, the figure in uh, 
Greek and uh, Roman mythology of uh, the story of Pygmalion who sculpted uh, and this sculpture named Galatia comes to life and uh, we in AI I think like to refer to Pandora and Galatia <laughs> quite often <Yeah. laughs> uh, but uh, when it comes to language and error handling uh, and ambiguities in language uh, what are the current solutions that uh, are used uh, to solving those issues? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Actually, my PhD thesis was on error handling in dialogue systems. Uh, so, uh, so that's a topic I, I think is super interesting. I think one of the reasons this used to actually be a bigger topic than it is today is because speech recognition that turns speech into words, which is a very important part if you're building a dialogue system, uh, used to be really, really error-prone and bad. So how do you deal with those situations where the system constantly misunderstands you? How should the system react and so on? So that was the topic. Uh, and this was like uh, 15 years ago or so. Uh, so of course a, l a lot have happened since then. Uh, but actually if you look at modern um, chatbots uh, or language models, they are not explicitly learned to handle errors. And uh, so they don't typically, like as humans, if I say something and you feel uncertain about what I mean or what I said, you typically ask a clarification request. So you might uh, sh check that you actually understood what I mean before you sort of continue. Uh, and this is very sophisticated because we also consider how important is this. If I ask you to, uh, if I ask uh, you to play a song, for example, if I ask my s smart speaker to, sp to play a song from Spotify, um, it will not check with me first if it heard correctly. It will just start playing because it, it's the program and designers of this knew that if 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 uh, there was a misunderstanding, it's very easy for me to correct it. I can just say the song again. It will play the right or correct song next time. But if I would ask it, I can't do that now. But if I could ask it to delete my hard drive, <laughs> I don't think it would just start deleting. <laughs> you would, of course, um, ask me whether I really want to do that. Um, so th that's a very important part of this error handling. We are very aware as humans of how important is the task that we are engaging with and to what extent should I try to clarify things and so on. And this is an also like when I'm speaking, you are nodding to me, you might be uh, doing what we call back channels, like mm-hmm and so on. That's also part of all this error handling or, or feedback system that is in place for us to maintain successful communication. And this is more or less completely absent from these language models. They just produce what is the likely next thing to do. So it thinks that, okay, in this situation, it might be likely to ask a clarification request or not. It, it doesn't do that because it is uncertain about what you said. It has no notion of whether it's uncertain or not. It just randomly samples from uh, things that are appropriate to say. Uh, and that's, I think, something that will people will look more into in the, because that's clearly sort of uh, a limiting uh, thing in, in current systems. And also perhaps a, a very important step towards a much more advanced uh, understanding of lang uh, language. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, people are already seeing this. If you ask ChatGPT questions, factual questions, uh, it might very well just uh, fabulate something uh, and make something up. Uh, and it sounds very certain in its answer. Because again, it doesn't have really a notion of how well it knows things. 
and it can't use that to reason about things, its own certainty and things. There's no like meta processing like that. Um, and and yeah, humans do that all the time, uh, and that's how we ensure that we don't just uh, say completely false things or that we uh, fail with our tasks and so on. So yeah, and even perhaps. Uh, we always have a slight amount of doubt in ourselves about even when we are certain about something. Yes. Might be wrong <laughs> about something. Here. And, and that's, of so course, very different. There is this um, joking expression called kiljissa, uh, uh, or <laughs> in Swedish, <laughs> which is a tendency uh, for men to be more certain of what they say uh, than, than women tend to be, or at least that's the general thought. <laughs> and so yeah it varies between people also how how much we sort of um, take risks <laughs> and how much we are sort of want to check things first and make sure that we get things right before we proceed and so on yeah uh, i think now we've covered the subject of language in its verbal form to a certain degree and uh, language in its verbal form has been studied for perhaps thousands of years by different writers or at least uh uh, the thoughts on it have been expressed in different manners, but uh, you also will to a certain degree with something that is so complex perhaps that no one even has tried in the past uh, just they have tried to understand it to a certain degree just in the past century uh, one of the first instances of uh, trying to understand nonverbal communications uh, is by Charles Darwin, I think, in his one of his books, uh, The Expressions in Humans and uh, Animals, uh, which was published in 1872. Uh, so, and that is a realm which is filled with so many ambiguities and complexities uh, that now we are moving toward uh, with the modern facial recognition techniques. But what are the methods for creating systems that can recognize patterns in humans' faces and even body language? And what importance does that have in creating more socially capable robots? Yeah, I think that's, that's very important. And uh, one way to sort of show that that's important or is to, to think about, uh, like, as I said earlier, uh, it we as humans think it's much better to meet in person uh, or at least have a, a video uh, link uh, compared to just the voice and of course that shows that there is something there uh, that is important and um, um, also I should add to that because you mentioned verbal communication but I think in many cases uh, as I also said earlier uh, there are non-verbal aspects of, of, of speech, which is, again, the prosody, the tone of our voice and so on, which is also extremely important, and, and that is traditionally neglected. So there has been such a big focus on written language. Uh, people, uh, and that's sort of traditional computational linguistics and so on. The written language is very central. Um, but actually, if you think about it, Written language is a very recent invention. It's like 5,000 years old or so, whereas humans have been speaking to each other for m at least 100,000 years. Uh, so that's the actually original. And, and you can think of written language as a technical innovation to approximate uh, what is the actual thing, which is the spoken interaction. So it's just an approximation. It's a much, much poorer approximation of what is the real spoken interaction. 
again that's why we prefer to speak to each other um but yeah back to the to the processing so yes uh, of course these things have become much easier to do now with uh, with than it was like 15 years ago now that we have deep learning techniques uh, where we can just train models on data to infer uh, things from the face and also the voice so we can do speech processing in a much much better way uh, to extract the things like prosody and, and so on um, and uh, just to take an example we are in our research very much interested in uh, this thing turn taking that I mentioned before so how do a speaker know that they are supposed to speak uh, and not and when is the next person's time to speak and if you look at humans, they are extremely good at this. So the sort of typical gap between two turns in a conversation can be around 200 milliseconds. And that's extremely fast. Um, and considering also that we have to think about what to say uh, as a response to what the other person said. Like you can't just come to think of something in 200 milliseconds. So uh, people are also, while you are speaking, I'm preparing my response and predicting what you are about to say and how, how, you, how your utterance will end so that I can start my whole machinery of preparing a response. And once I detect that you're done, I'm ready and I can go. And that's just amazing how, how the human brain uh, can do that, uh, all these things simultaneously. And of course, in order to do that, we need some coordination signal. So I need a signal from you to know that you're not just pausing. Maybe you're pausing to think of something. And I can notice immediately that it's not my turn to speak. Now, uh, machines are extremely bad at this. So you often, uh, they are just listening for this silence. So if you make a pause, the machine might intera in, uh, interrupt you and start speaking. Uh, or it might be very sluggish. So it's much, much more than 200 milliseconds, of course. You have to wait for it to respond to you. And this is something we want to improve. And there, these nonverbal signals are very important. So we listen for the tone in the voice of the other speaker to detect when it's my turn to speak. But also the visual channel. So I can see from your body language uh, to what extent you want me to speak or if you want me to give feedback, for example. Uh, for example, a gaze. So if you are making a pause, you might gaze away. Uh, and I will interpret that as a signal that you want to continue speaking. I should wait for you. Whereas if you, towards the end of your utterance, you look up at me, um, then I know that uh, it's sort of uh, the turn should pass to the other speaker. And then we combine these in a very sophisticated way. And that's where we use deep learning techniques to be able to sort of extract all these figure, uh, signals to be able to, to make those predictions and possibly make a robot that is uh, extremely good at knowing exactly when to take the turn, when to give a feedback and so on to have a much smoother interaction that is possible today. Yeah, it's now I'm slightly hyper-conscious about all my uh, <laughs> non-verbal <laughs> communication. Yes. <laughs> because uh, every time we uh, discuss these type of things, uh, I start thinking, um, how am I uh, <laughs> using my eyebrows <laughs> or hands? Or <laughs> uh, but you discuss a lot about tonal patterns uh, and listening for humans and uh, how they speak exactly when they pause, when they perhaps take their voice down or uh, up. And, of course, the current uh, 
assistant uh, bots are much more just in the form of you have to give them an order or something like that to be able to interact with them. But how do you use that system and implement it also in a robot? How do you create uh, machines that can uh, have variating degrees uh, uh, in the tone and speech or even the reactions to our uh, conversations? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of components involved there, and, and one there is, I think what you're talking about is the speech synthesis, for example. So how, how do we control the robot's way of... So it's one thing that the robot should be able to read your expressions. It should be able to pick up you through the camera, through microphone and so on. Uh, but it should also, of course, the robot should be able to express all those things so that you know if the robot sounds uncertain if the robot is just perhaps making a pause and wants to continue speaking. Uh, and this has traditionally not been done. So the it's very it might say something and you might very well misinterpret what its actual intention is or you might accidentally interrupt the robot because there was no clear turn-taking signal from the robot. Uh, so... Um, uh, Speech synthesis has traditionally been trained on, on written, on uh, like um, uh, someone reading, like a newsreader or, or, or sort of an audiobook, someone reading a text. Uh, and then you basically train that on large amounts of, of uh, text and, and, and uh, speech data. Um, but that's, of course, very different from how we speak in a conversation. So in a conversation, we have uh, much more things going on. And where, where what I say is, is dependent on what you said and so on. And we use different tones in order to express yeah, things like turn-taking turn is, of course, absent uh, from an audiobook, uh, basically. Uh, but also things like feedback, like when I uh, give acknowledgments and so on to you. And I use different tones of my voice to maybe sound surprised or sound uh, uh, yeah, uncertain uh, and so on. So we really need to train this system. I think the way we train it is similar. It's just that the input has to be much richer than just the text that it's supposed to speak, but also what is the robot's intention of what it wants to say and what is the context in which this is said. Uh, so that's, of course, research that is being done now uh, to, to sort of add those things also uh, and not just make it sound like a newsreader. It's the number of parameters that have to go into making this a possibility, both from an analysis and observation perspective from a robot, but also implementing in it in a robot. Is there are so many different factors that need to be uh, a robot needs to be trained on to be able to do this that uh, it sometimes looks like a gigantic task, truly. Uh, but how do you see the outlook for this being possible uh, in the future? Or is it a new future or is it a mid to near future? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, mean I, I think, first of all, we should... I think there is, there is this idea of creating some kind of generic uh, social robot or conversational system or chatbot that can just do dialogue, whatever that dialogue is. And I think that's a misconception. So I think we have to think about much more specific use cases. So if we think of what if we do a robot that yeah, works 
uh, in a hotel reception or maybe a robot that uh, makes interviews. Uh, that's something we have looked at, like a robot that, that can do an interview. Uh, uh, or a robot that simulates uh, a virtual patient that doctor can train with. That's another use case we're looking into. So if you look at the specific use case, then the problem becomes much more manageable uh, because then you can collect data of perhaps people doing interviews and train models on that. Uh, and then you are much more likely to succeed. But the problem is, is, I think, what is really, really hard or not perhaps impossible is, is to have this idea that you're going to do some kind of general purpose thing that is going to do everything. <laughs> uh, and that's just unrealistic. Uh, so I, I think we have to think, at least in the sort of mid-term uh, future, uh, to, to think more about what is this robot for or what is this system for? And once we know that, we can start to narrow down the problem. And then we can also do it in a much more sophisticated way and ta take much more things into account. But is are your training systems, the, the interviews, do you think they are the right data? Because these robots are, or these AI systems are to a certain degree, uh, by some uh, uh, publications, been called parrots recently. They are very complex parrots. Uh, do you think that there might exist a risk for having a slight uh, incorrections in the data if humans, when they are being they're known to be perceived, uh, behave completely differently, perhaps to when they uh, are in a normal conversation without any microphones or cameras around them? Yeah, to, to what they, to some extent they are parrots of course if you train them on data but it doesn't only have to be that I mean that's the sort of traditional way of doing machine learning you have a big data set of people talking and then you just build a model and then you have a robot talking like people and of course there are many problems with that one is of course that people are not always a good model uh, <laughs> so for example <laughs> people have built these chatbots based on how people talk on Twitter and it becomes an awful chatbot uh, people are awful on Twitter to a large extent. Uh, so you really have to teach it how you want it to behave. And that's actually one of the advances that they made with this chat GPT uh, is that they not only trained it on, uh, on, on all these uh, texts that you find on the internet, but uh, they actually used humans to, to train it, to give it examples to humans of its output and ask humans, do you like this kind of answer? And then humans can tell that if it's saying things that are racist or, or other things that you don't want it to say, you can tell that this is not a good answer. Uh, and then it will learn to conform to those norms that we sort of give it. Um, so, so it is possible also to sort of um, teach it uh, how we want it to behave and not just act like a parrot in that sense. Yeah, and the thing about that is that for a very long time, we have had AI from uh, the 1960s or something about that, 1950s. Uh, and there have been winters and there have been uh, so-called springs in the AI uh, technologies. But uh, what has really been the cause of the breakthroughs has been these unsupervised systems that just take in humongous corpuses and analyze them. Don't you think that there might, I mean, if we go back to the system where we have to start doing rigorous testings of supervised uh, uh, testing on 
they be, they behave uh, there's a slight drawback to the speed of the innovation or perhaps that's a good thing to have a slight drawback on the speed of the innovation if it means that they are slightly better uh, and less yeah it's also depend on what you mean by speed of innovation it's not necessarily innovation if you're <laughs> doing <laughs> something <laughs> that behaves in a bad way it might be sort of an illusionary innovation that we are proceeding but we, we are not creating things that are useful for for people or and uh, so, so um, I think there is a general trend or there will be a trend towards also systems where you as I, I said uh, try to do more focused tasks like very recently uh, Meta uh, released uh, this or, or uh, published a paper on their uh, Cicero um, system that could play d- the game of diplomacy which is a board game that not only involves strategic moving of pieces on a board but also communication with the other players so you have to form pacts you have to be able to uh, negotiate to persuade and maybe even bluff in order to win this game Um, and uh, actually their system sort of it was on the same level as the best humans uh, which is really really fascinating because it actually has to use natural language in a way that is very very interesting uh, and and in a way much more interesting than these chatbots um, that just respond to 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 questions and so on and but the interesting thing with that system is first it's a very very constrained task it was trained specifically to play this game but it's also built in a very sort of modular way so it uses reinforcement learning and planning and a lot of different components in order to do this task. It's not just trained on a large corpus of diplomacy games, <laughs> which would be this sort of uh, more s- straightforward end-to-end brute force approach. Um, so I think that hints a little bit towards what we will see more of, uh, more constrained, more modular things that is perhaps also much more interesting and useful to us. That is, that's that was so fascinating about the diplomacy and Meta's AI system the, because it, compared to the uh, DeepMind's Go spelling or chess spelling uh, AIs, it didn't rank as the highest ever uh, player in uh, its history, as it was the case with Go and chess. It ranks with the top players, mm. uh, which perhaps indicates that as we get closer to uh, a better and more uh, advanced systems that can have uh, multi-factor processings, uh, they become a bit less, uh, a bit more like us and uh, less this of this uh, just uh, completely super uh, being that is capable of doing extraordinary things it is, uh, of course, extraordinary what it has achieved, but they, we draw them back to our level of uh, uh, humanity to a certain degree as well, because we have to combine so many different uh, elements into it, and the ambiguities start rising uh, in uh, these type of tasks. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think the, the there is such a big difference between implementing a game like Go or Chess, where it's only about the strategic decision, and then you can it's it's almost like a, a calculator. Of course, it can do much better than a human if you just give it enough compute power. Uh, but this is about 
again, negotiation and, and persuasion where you involve other humans into your strategy um, and especially through natural language as an interface. Uh, that's clearly something very different and yeah, where we don't, yeah. It might very well be that this is just a step and it will be superhuman at, <laughs> at some point, <laughs> but it's it's a different type of task, yeah, clearly. And uh, about this interacting with multi-parties, uh, when you're sitting and just interacting uh, the two of us together uh, and are completely focused perhaps on uh, each other's uh, speech and uh nonverbal uh, communications uh, but when you involve multiple uh, humans or even robots in the same conversation uh, suddenly the system becomes even more complex how are the approaches to creating uh, assigning the right emotions to the right humans the right tones of conversation in a general uh, conversation amongst different entities uh, in your work yeah, so so uh, yeah, multi-party conversation is interesting. We have studied that uh, quite a bit. It's also one of the cases where a robot makes more sense than a smart speaker because uh, if you are several people talking to a smart speaker, the smart speaker wouldn't know if, <laughs> first of all, hard to say who is talking, uh, but also who is addressing whom uh, now. It's very unclear. Uh, it's like having a telephone conversation with a lot of people in the same call. It's it's would be very messy. Um, but in a, in a physical situation, it's sort of back to the turn-taking that we talked about. So uh, that's tricky when you're two, but of course even more tricky when you're several people because it's just does not enough for you to recognize that I have done speaking. You also have to think about, should I speak now or should I let someone else speak? So if you are the robot in such a conversation, you have to think about, someone said something, should I answer that or should, I, should the other human answer that so uh, for example we have a game that we have also tried to use for a language learning setting in in schools where the robot plays a game together with two humans uh, and the nice thing there is that the humans can also discuss with each other so uh, they are trying to solve a pr problem together and, and sometimes the humans might help each other and sometimes the robot might help them uh, and that's a very very interesting setting i think um, especially if it's like language learning Maybe sometimes the two, the other human would know, and maybe they would learn from actually uh, helping the other uh, person. Uh, but sometimes the robot needs to to jump in in the conversation and so on. Um, and there are a lot of interesting factors. One, of course, is the robot should know when to speak, but also uh, what if the ba discussion is imbalanced, so that one person, if it's two children, speaks much more than the other. The robot can try to make the other one talk more. So you can, by just having, we have seen this, by just having the robot look at the other person, uh, they will uh, start to contribute more to the conversation. Uh, so the robot can have a lot of interesting roles. In but uh, will the problem of training the robot on the right data become even clearer there? Because you can have a robot that jumps in every conversation at all times, or can you uh, control to what degree this robot engages in every conversation and what should even the protocol be about this? How much should a robot be engaged in a conversation if there are multiple human beings uh, that are having a discussion? 
Yeah, so we don't typically train these systems like in an, this end-to-end way. We typically can control these things, so we can uh, sort of decide how much the robot should try to jump in and not. Um, and I would say that depends entirely on the task. Like, do you want uh, do you want the robot to uh, to be sort of leading the discussion, or do you want to take let the robot take a step back and just monitor the interaction? and see what happens and maybe just jump in if it's uh, it, it can actually provide some some extra information or so uh, so yeah i would say that depends on very very much on the task and uh, that's again the strength of not only using end-to-end approaches but to actually have more control over the system where you as a designer cannot sort of so affect those differently but what do you think in the new future are the most important tasks for social robots? Do you think in the health sector, perhaps, or in schools, as you said, maybe between children? Uh, yeah. Are there any applications at uh, for art uh, that uh, you guys might be looking into in the very near future? So... Uh, actually, I mean, Furhat as a company is a platform company, so the whole idea is that Furhat uh, is a platform. Uh, it's not some robots are, d- are developed to do one specific task and it's designed towards that task but actually for hat is supposed to be used in a lot of different situations and uh, we are creating the platform in a generic way so that people will actually uh, be able to come up with new ideas that we never thought about um, and uh, we are of course using it at kth also in our research um and I think there are tons of applications that are very interesting. I think we, we are we are testing it for, as I said, language learning. We have used it in, in schools to see if we can uh, teach uh, English to Swedish students. Um, and um, we, are, we have another uh, example where it's um, where we are a project together with uh, Karolinska, where we are looking at using it, uh, as I mentioned before, as a virtual patient, so that doctors can train to talk to patients and uh, ask them questions uh, in in the right way uh, and, and then make a diagnosis of the person. So that's super interesting and uh, a, very, a very nice application, I think, of these language models because we can sort of um, use it to create a very free-form interaction uh, in these kind of settings. Uh, and another example is a project we have where we are looking at putting robots into autonomous buses. So now, so in the future, of course, if you have autonomous buses, there is no human there to sort of represent the bus. <laughs> that you can ask a question, what if the bus suddenly stops? Who should I ask? What, what happened? Or, or other kind of questions that you might have. Um, so one natural solution to that would be to have a, a robot on board the bus that people can talk to, um, ask questions. But also an interesting side effect of that is that you can imagine that walking up uh, late at night on a, a self-driving bus with no person working there, and there's just one other passenger, and you feel a little bit of a threat from that person, it's not very comfortable setting, perhaps, to sit alone uh, on a self-driving bus. But what if there was a robot there? Uh, will people behave in a more sort of uh, a nicer way if they know that there is another sort of social entity in there? Uh, I think that's a very interesting uh, question also. So I think, um, yeah, we, we could really think about what kind of functions these 
uh, robots can have beyond just sort of answering questions. Yeah. It's very interesting to think about uh, that question of safety, as you said, because uh, just a thought of uh, there are, of course, many science fiction references to uh, this case that you mentioned. In the majority of those cases, when uh, th there was a robot involved and two people, the robot didn't turn out to have a very <laughs> good <laughs> outcome for it uh, written out. Uh, but, uh, of course, I think uh, there's a really interesting potentials in terms of just uh, applying these robots as a means of observers for the to... Uh, perhaps create a more safe environment for people to feel that they just, if in the worst case scenarios, have someone there. But uh, there are now many uh, companies working uh, to a certain degree or another. Uh, the two main ones are uh, Tesla and uh, Boston Dynamics on humanoid robots. Uh, Tesla is working on the Optimus robots. Uh, and uh, these are becoming more and more capable at doing different tasks, although uh, even they claim themselves that the biggest challenge remains the uh, artificial intelligence part. But, and you uh, began this talk with talking about uh, C-3PO. Uh, how close are we to putting a head that can express emotions on a robot and just having that as an entity in society. And what do you think are the implications of that for us? Yeah, I think... I think I mean this is... I do apologize. This is a slightly going to the science fiction realm of it compared to the science uh, part of it. But it is very interesting just to see what people that are in the field think about the potential, very perhaps slightly longer-term potentials of this. Yeah. I think it goes back a bit to what uh, what I said earlier about uh, sort of more specific, not general purpose robots. I think robots that can just walk around in the streets and uh, or just do general purpose things, uh, that's very, very far away. Like even just a robot that... I mean, it would be fantastic to have a robot butler in your home, right? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the reason uh, <laughs> to a certain degree that I ask that is Elon Musk, as always, uh, with yeah. a slightly ambitious uh, timelines, he thinks that maybe that will be a possibility that you'll tell your robot to go and grab you a bottle yeah. of milk <laughs> at night. I, uh, think, uh, I think that's very, very far away. Uh, yes, uh, so I think as long as we build m robots for very specific tasks, like there already exist robots that uh, work in, in like uh, warehouses and so on, uh, that's fine, and they can be much more advanced than, than they are today. But the idea of a general purpose, like, or a, let's say a robot working in a kindergarten, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's very, very far away. Uh, uh, I mean, just think of all pot potential situation and all the social codes that you will need to read and understand and react to, and all, of course, the physical manipulation tasks involved and so on. Uh, it's just very, very far away. Uh, to say, given where we are today, wh when, when that could possibly happen. Yes, and I think there are a lot of researchers that hold the exact same position, but at the very same time say, if we keep on doing more and more tasks, maybe we can combine them all together to be able to create more general purpose uh, robots. That's Yeah, I am, yeah, 
as as you might suspect, I'm a bit hesitant. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, <laughs> you're I, I, on the more hesitant. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more hesitant side. I'm more thinking about uh, more specific purpose things than general purpose things. Um, I think that's a more realistic path, uh, at least for for the foreseeable future. Uh, and of course, you can debate what is specific and what is general. Uh, I mean, ChatGPT is somewhat general in a sense. It can answer questions about a lot of things, but it's not a lo- also a lot of things it doesn't want to talk about. So, and it doesn't, c- it can't do for you. So, it's also constrained, uh, clearly. So, um, yeah, things will open up, but they will continue to to be targeted towards certain use cases. I think. Yeah. And. Uh at last, I have to say and ask, do you think robots are coming for our jobs? Uh, <laughs> do you, uh, I mean, there are many applications even right now uh, that there is, of course, resistance amongst humans uh, of robots becoming uh, more interactive with us throughout our daily lives and taking people's places in uh, offices or even in a perhaps reception area. You could have... Uh, a robot that takes in people, but there yeah. is a larger and larger debate. Uh, debate when it comes to robots such as ChatGPT, it's just a lot of programmers, a lot of uh, people that do tasks that are even at the moment uh, completely possible to be done by a robot to be replaced. Do you think? Uh yeah, I mean, of course, to some extent, that's natural evolution with technology. Uh, jobs change. Uh, and people will use these technologies, of course. So they're the way they are doing their job, like if you are a lawyer, the way you do your job using uh, things like ChatGPT will, of course, change the way you do your job. It will it might also change the number of lawyers we need. Uh, if they have access to very advanced technology, they can be much more uh, efficient. But it's not always clear that it means that there are less job o- opportunities. It can also be that the demand increases. So... For example, if I would have a, the robot butler in my home, uh, nobody would be unemployed because of that, right? Because I don't have a human butler in my home currently that would be unemployed. Uh, so, uh, and that, I mean, that goes for, for most people. And that's like a lot of robots, if everyone wants to have maybe a few robot butlers in their home even. Um, so it's it's not uh, necessarily the case that new technology always like replaces one human who did that job before but certainly the way people do things will change uh, but but yeah the number of jobs uh, is not necessarily uh, affected so uh, thank you very much for that uh I do apologize about the last bit going a bit too far into the future, perhaps. No, but uh, uh, it is very interesting stuff that is coming at a very interesting pace. Just in the past 10 years, we've seen so many breakthroughs and uh, just makes you be very hopeful about what's coming in the next 10. Yeah. Uh, so, Gabriel Scanze, thank you very much for participating in the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me.